turn your attention to uh, John chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 38. So John 13, 31 through 38. We are uh, decidedly in the last half of the book of John, and that means we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And what I've done is uh, broken that down in you know, kind of seven movements in this last week of Jesus' life. We've already looked at the triumphal entry and the Last Supper, and this morning we're beginning on a part known as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus saying goodbye. He's uh, given His disciples His last words before He dies. All these things that Jesus wants to tell His disciples before He leaves them through His death, resurrection, and ascension. And the disciples are going to need these words. They're going to need what he has to say. He's just washed the disciples' feet. And then what he's demonstrated in that, now he puts into a word. Love. Love. Uh, Love is something that can be hard to define, but you usually know it when you see it. And you certainly see it in Jesus. The way he serves, his compassion, and the degree which he moves to raise his people up. So that all of this lands in this, in this word, love. Now, I want to ask you a question before we read the passage together. And here's the question, okay? Now, imagine yourself as a person of great influence, right? It's not hard for you to do. Uh, you've done that before. Imagine yourself as a person of great influence, and there is a huge movement, let's call it a worldwide movement, that takes place in your name after your influence, okay? And this is the key thing that you told your followers. You treat each other the way I treated you. What would the world look like? Makes you glad for Jesus, doesn't it? Let's read John 13, 31 through 38 together. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we open and share your word together, I pray um, that you'll help us make it clear and help us to recognize that it's from you uh, with all your wisdom and your authority, your place, and and, uh, in its truth, we need it. 
So will you help us to appropriate for your glory, for our joy, and for the benefit of the world, your word this morning. Help us to do as Jesus commanded, to love each other. Uh, it's in his name we pray, amen. And let's take the narrative in three parts this morning. The first part is going to be the longest part, uh, and, and let's call it, in verses 31 through 33, the glorifying moment, okay? Uh, we're going to see that this comes through this cross sequence. In other words, this sequence of events, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and all that gets accomplished through that, uh, the glorifying moment. We're reminded immediately of the context whenever we start in verse 31 where it says, when he had gone out, the he there is Judas. Remember, Jesus has exposed his plot, he's exposed his plan, and uh, Judas leaves and the betrayal is physically now set in motion. It's totally gone now, it's completely removed from the context, and it's just Jesus and the disciples. And, and the word glorified, there's an emphasis here, shows up, or it's variation, five times, verses 31 and 32. Let's call it a, an emphasis, all right? If you say the same thing over and over and over, you're highlighting that. You're centralizing that. And the word is glorified or glorification. It's important. And so if we know what that means, it takes us a long way to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Because he's talking about the time of the glorification uh, coming and how God is glorified in him and, uh, and that sort of thing. So what, what is he talking about here with glorification? Uh, glorification means that there's this admirable thing that gets put on display for people to see. Maybe, maybe at one point it was hidden or they didn't have eyes to see it. It was veiled some way, but now it's revealed. And here, uh, it's the act of God showing His perfections, putting His uh, perfections, His splendor on display for all to see, and He's doing that through the Son. It's the act of God's glory, the Father and Son, working in concert with each other in what Jesus is, did in the relationship that the two have with each other to put on display just who God is. How are you going to know that? What kind of God He is and His greatness? You're going to see that in Jesus and how God is working through Him. You could call it a divine self-disclosure. You're going to see this more and more throughout the farewell discourse where people ask the question, I want to know what God is like. What is God really like? And Jesus' response to that is, you look at me. And you're going to see the person of God and the plan of God on display. You're going to see God's glory on display in this way. I'm going to show you, he says, all my greatness. I'm going to show you who I am, says the foot washer. Remember he's just done that? Um, and then you think about the timing. It's not way off in the future. It's now. Now is the time. Jesus, this display, when is all this glorification where we're going to see who God is and His perfections and His splendor put on display? When is it? It's now. He says, now is the time for that. God is going to do this at once. It's imminent. So then you have to ask yourself, in this context, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. What is this right now? What's about to happen? So he's talking about glorification, and we know that the cross is coming up. And what he's doing is he's putting those two things together. It's not the way that we would see it. He puts those two things, uh, put it this way. 
what the world is going to see is Jesus on the cross as a public spectacle of shame. And what's actually happening, if you've got eyes to see it, is the one bearing your sin and shame and accomplishing this great victory to overcome death by putting away your sin because he bore it himself. He's the only one who could. It's not what you would think, in other words. It's very counterintuitive when he starts talking about glorification and this rise to glory. Uh, it's not this magnificent rise to power. You can see that sometimes with people, right? You can just watch them like grow in esteem and the way these accolades and the way people see him and whatnot. And, and instead, what we see with Jesus is just the opposite. See this down, down, down. About the time, like, if he was at the Father's side, where did he, he came and identified with you? Then he lived this righteous life and he became one of us and he represents you and uh, he gets wrongly accused and he bears other people's shame and he bears people's sin and he gets buried down, down, even, even to the point of the cross is what Philippians says. But why do you do that? Why did Jesus go down, 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 down? Well, he's identifying with you so that you could identify with him. He's going down, down, down so that he can raise you up, up, up. Right? Well, we, we think that glory is visible esteem. It's not really, you know, right? People have to recognize that. And there's going to be a vindication of this. But all that the world sees in the cross is failure. What's actually happening is the greatest victory in history. What's actually happened is, is victory. The glorification uh, Jesus is pointing to whenever he talks about this is the cross and everything that's going to be accomplished through it. He also says something else. He tells his disciples that they can't follow him. It's, uh, it's intriguing to them because that's all they've been doing the last three years, right? Everywhere Jesus went, they walked with him. They are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. He had smarty pants word. He had a peripatetic ministry. Okay, what does that mean? It just cracks me up sometimes how scholars do this. The only thing, they come up with this big word, peripatetic ministry. And in the Greek, it just means he walked around. All right, I don't know why. You got to get paid for something in academia, right? But Jesus walked around and the disciples literally followed him everywhere he went. And now he's saying, all of a sudden it seems to them, I'm about to go someplace and you can't come this time. And it raises a question, why, why couldn't we come? And we want to come and, and that sort of thing. They know they're in a pressure cooker. And he tells them in verse 34, I told the Jews this, remember? I told them, you're going to seek me and you're not going to be able to find me. Two times before, one time in chapter 7, one time in chapter 8. And by the Jews here, he means those people who, these Jewish leaders who had been opposing him. Right? They're, they're constantly in public. They're pushing back against Jesus' ministry. They, they want to undermine him. They want to undermine any success he might have. And he tells them, you're going to seek me, but you won't be able to find me. And more than that, you're going to die in your sin. There's not going to be atonement uh, for your sin. But he says something to the disciples now that sounds a lot like that. So it's similar in one way, but totally different in another. He tells his disciples in verse 34, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You're going to seek me. Here's how it's similar. You're going to seek me, but you're not going to be able to follow me. How's it different? Very different in another way. Remember what he told the, his opponents? 
Like, listen, you're going to seek me, but you're not going to be able to find me. <clears throat> you're going to die without atonement. You're going to die in your sin. What does he say to the disciples? Ahead in, in chapter 14, all part of the same conversation, he says, you're going to seek me, you're not going to be able to find me, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, it's going to be through my death that you live. You're, you're going to have life through me. So why is it that they can't follow? Because this is only his path. Now he's making a way. They're going to be able to follow afterward, he tells Peter. Think about it in this sense. The cross. Why can't they follow him? He's going to the cross. There is only one Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's going to ascend to the Father. There's only one who's uniquely seated at the right hand of the Father with that place. His path and his place is unique to make a way for them. That's why they can't follow. That's why they're going to come afterward. So if you want to nutshell it, this glorification that he talks, uh, that he refers to is seen through the lens of the cross and what happens after, where God puts his perfect justice and his deep mercy together, right, without compromising either, so that through the cross and through the vindication of who Jesus is in his resurrection and ascension, the place will be made uh, for you so that you can follow. This is what reveals God. You get to see God's perfections being put on display. Is God absolutely just? Yes. And yet at the same time, is He a God of mercy? Yes. How do you put those two together? How do you reconcile perfect justice and perfect mercy? Well, you're going to have to look at the cross. This is what reveals God, the cross and what follows. So this glorifying moment is coming and the time is now. He says, God is going to do this at once. Here we are, guys. The next uh, part in the narrative is the new command. Very familiar um, to some of you, it's, and it's to love, right? Um, I think about not that long ago, I had taken some time to pray, and I was reflecting on the church, and um, it's kind of intention there. On the one hand, I see our church family as being a loving church family. I know I've been supported, I, I watch the relationships that you have with each other, many of you, and I see love and I see commitment. I see that you're better because the church family is in your life and they care about you. I see many of you making such a great contribution to the church family. But I just also, every time I encounter this, I just think we could do this more, better, clearer. And as I pray, I just, one of the things that I would love to see, I see a relational bent in Lifeway, I'd love to see us have a more relational bent, right? to recognize the other people around us and to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Sounds like a new commandment, right? Um, so he says, let's read this part again. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Question, how is this new? Because it's not like God has been silent on the topic of love. It's not like he was like, well, in the old days, I really wasn't into that. And now, I just think maybe let's give love a shot. You know, it's not like a pop song from the 70s or anything like that, right? It's, it's not as though God is going through this transition. In the Old Testament, he's very clear about it. The greatest command to love God with your all. 
to love your neighbor as yourself. So God has addressed the issue of love, but it's new in that when Jesus expresses this, or when he talks about this, this command is, is, is expressing a righteousness already fulfilled. You're not expressing love here to accomplish something. You're expressing love here to demonstrate something. Something that's already been done for you. It points to a new, sta- a new standard, the love of Jesus that fulfilled that righteousness on the cross. That specifically aims, and it's new in this sense, at other believers. Right? Where, where before it's love God, love your neighbor, and here he says love each other. You disciples, you people, we could, uh, we could apply it this way. The people in your church family, other believers that you encounter, love one another. A few features of this new command. One, it's essential. Notably, Jesus didn't say, I have a new suggestion for you. Here's something I, I would love for you to try. A new commandment. Another word for that is law, an order. Right? Jesus is saying, this is the mandate uh, in the kingdom of God, that you love one another. Did you, you realize, right, that you can be orthodox and dead? That you can have the truth in your head and never really appropriate that and express it. Never really show that you've got the meeting down. Truth without love actually doesn't understand the point of truth in the first place. If truth never finds people and builds them up, you don't know the truth and you're devoid of love, so you miss everything. It's essential. And I say this for this reason. There are believers who would say, I'm a truth guy, and other people are grace guys. I'm a truth lady, but other people are grace ladies, right? Grace isn't really grace if it's not responding to the truth. There's not love if it's not aimed by truth. The idea that you can have the truth and embody righteousness without love of other people means that you don't understand the the gospel at all. Like at the foundation, you get Jesus died for sinners. It's essential. So the person who says, Jesus is my master, but I'm not going to live like him at all, misses the point there. It's essential. Don't lie to yourself. In other words, and to say, I'm a godly person. I just don't love people. Right? You're not a godly person in such a case. I, I, I'm trying to, I'm ripping now. Good luck, right? Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get to the point, as you think about this, as you consider it, and you, and you try to excuse yourself from being obligated to other people, I'm just letting you know that that door isn't there inside the kingdom as a follower of Jesus. Love is essential. It's deep, too. That's the second thing we see. Um, it'd be one thing if, if Jesus said, I want you to love each other, just do the best you can, because people are difficult. Okay. He doesn't say that, or he doesn't say just grow a little bit as you go, right? Which is a good idea. You should try to get better and better at love as you go, more mature in it. He says, love each other as I have loved you. And he's about to go to the cross. No holds barred, no restraint, great sacrifice, a great inconvenience, you might say. The cross is coming. This kind of love I want you to express is shown in the foot washing on the one hand and to the point of going to the cross on the other. And number three, it it should be observable. Uh, it's got to be more than just feeling. Now, I think part of loving other people is having a, a good attitude toward them. 
right? I mean, the best you can, right? Uh, it's like, like the idea that you see other people, people are tricky. Uh, you can run into snags lo- loving other people. But you need a good disposition toward them, to, right? You've got to be disposed to love them. You've got to see them as uh, people of value. But what Jesus says is, this is the way other people are going to know that you're my disciples. By the love you have for one another. It's, it's a part of our witness, but like it's going to be observed. It's a mark of authenticity. It's an offer of proof in our witness to the gospel. It corroborates the gospel we share. We can speak the gospel, and then if people go, well, how do we know it's true? They can see the way we treat each other as an, as an offer of proof. Right? They can see what we preach in action. They can see people with different backgrounds, not a, and, and actually getting to the core of the gospel and our fellowship with each other, in spite of our differences and saying, I value you, I love you, you're better because I'm in your life and vice versa. Right? It's, it's got to be observable. A um, little qualification here. This happens sometimes in the church because it's commanded that we're to love each other. I think in, in, as a general rule, you don't get to boss other people around about how they ought to love you. That's manipulative, right? Like, like you need to be my friend because the Bible tells you to. Like, one, that's weird and creepy, okay? Like, the, like the church can't assign you friends. You got to just, you got to come in and you got to be a decent dude or dudette and, right, interact with people. Be very, very human about it. Don't boss people around out of your insecurities or whatnot. On the other hand, you ought to be able to come into a church family and go, there's a benefit of the doubt here. Right? We share the gospel in common. We share eternity in common. And I know it's here for me. I, one of the things that I think about an awful lot is how a good friend, if, if, if I'm a good friend to you and you're a good friend to me, for example, you ought to be better for Jesus because I'm in your life and I ought to be better for Jesus because you're in mine. Um, new command. Uh, third thing, lastly and uh, sadly, is the third part of the narrative is this coming denial, verses 36 through 38. Uh, Peter uh, raises the question, he totally blows past the command. New commandment I give to you, love one another as I've loved you. And Peter's first response to that is, wait, where are you going? It's like he doesn't even hear the command. Not even just love, it's like Jesus, the master, puts the word command on there. Here's an order, guys. And all Peter can think about is, where are you going? And why can't I come? And if you follow the narrative closely enough, part of what Peter is saying is, I'm worthy. I can do this. Maybe these, okay, I get it. You chose the other guys. They're, they're no Simon Peter, okay? But I just want you to know I'm there. Right? I am a worthy follower. Where you are going, Jesus I can go. I can do it. But Jesus says, you know, when in verse 34, Peter asks him, like, hey, where are you going? And Jesus' response to that is, where I'm going, you can't, you can't come now. You're going to come afterward. You could call this good news or not good news. Right? Afterward, he, Peter will suffer. But he's also afterward going to share in Jesus' victory. 
Peter objects in verses uh, 36 and 37. He says this, uh, verse 37, uh, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. You hear what he's saying? I can. I can do this. What Peter's trying to do is he's trying to prove that his love is so great, there is no way he will ever fail Jesus. This is going to be devastating to him when it happens. And if you think that your relationship with God is based on your love for him being so great that you would absolutely never fail him, you've got a, right, you've got a setback in your future. The good news is that you have something incredibly great to base your relationship with God on. And that is that his love for you is so great that he'll never let you go. But what Peter's doing is he's reversing it. Right? This, is, this is the good news of performance, which is no good news at all. Listen, you're going to go, Jesus, but I can follow you. Maybe the rest of these guys can't, but I would lay down my life for you. I would die for you. I know you've got opponents, but I would give them the business. Just give me a chance and you'll see. I will be there till the end. And what Jesus tells him in verse 38 is this. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus is blunt. Uh, no. You are not the man you think you are. The guy you look at in the mirror, that's, he doesn't let him down gently. It turns out Jesus is not your mom. Right? He doesn't just look at you and go, you know what, sweetie? You can do this. He's precise. He gives him the time and the times. Three times. Not once, not twice. Three times you're going to deny me. And then the time. Dude, you won't even make it through the night. Right? Morning's going to happen. The rooster's going to be crowing. And you're, you're not just going to fail once. What have you got a do-over? What if you got two do-overs? It's not that he would have been better on four. You get it? This is who Peter is without Christ. The narrative in a nutshell, if you look at it like this, all right, so you look at it in parts. Jesus is talking about his glorification through the, the cross and what that's going to mean to you. And uh, at the end, it's Peter's coming denial, right? But in the middle, there's the new command bookended by Jesus' love and Peter's love. See what you're looking at? You're seeing one great example and another, this is, this is you without the gospel. This is you without grace. Love is the greatest thing every believer has in terms of relationship. Galatians 6.2, Paul is reflecting on these words here. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law, the new command of Christ. One way that you show you love each other the way I've loved you, Jesus is saying is, you bear one another's burdens. Think about that sometimes. I can't fix your burdens. I can't take them away. You can't do that for each other so often. But you know what suffering does? It makes you, it's, it's, uh, it's lonely, isn't it? Your pain. Because you, you feel your pain in a way nobody else can feel your pain. And what bearing one another's burdens does means that, like, listen, you don't have to be alone bearing this burden. I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to put my shoulder under your burden and I'm going to help you carry it 
a little ways. Or as Paul reflects on the, I mean, like the greatest things in the Christian life, 1 Corinthians 13, talks about all these great things, he talks about these empty things, but when he talks about the great things, he says the greatest thing is love. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here, right? What's, what moves you to make a difference for other people? And, and Jesus' movement that way is efficacious. Let's end this way. Let's talk about three realities, uh, embracing these three realities I'm going to mention that will make you spiritually sharper. The reason I'm calling them three realities is it's just how it works. These, this is the reality. You veer away from it, you, you lose track. If, if you embrace these things, you, you'll, it'll tend to make and keep you sharp spiritually. What are they? Well, number one, people are frail. Right? Even the tough guys. Even the guys who would, quote unquote, never deny you. Even the ladies who would lay down their lives for the cause. You can see it in Peter. He's really tough at the din dinner table. You ever notice that when you're not in the ring? You can kind of be tough, but whenever you're in the ring, somebody punches you in the face. You know, it makes you cry to hurt your feelings and all of that. It's harder to be tougher there, isn't it? Peter's talking big. The part of the problem for Peter is that he doesn't get to do this on his own terms. So he's tough at the table. Uh, it just eludes him after that. It's not just him. It's all the other disciples too. It's you. It's me. Right? People are frail. Doesn't mean you should walk around like a weakling. What should... What should frail people do? Well, you turn to strength, right? If you're not strong, and there's somebody there who loves you, is committed to you, who is strong, what should you do? The frail should turn to strength. Think about this. Uh, in a couple of chapters, Jesus will say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul writes Philippians and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See the connection there? Who are you apart from Christ and who are you with Christ? Where are you going to get your strength? People are frail, but you're not left alone. It takes us to the second reality. Jesus did it all. That's, it, it, he's where my strength and my security is. Nobody else, not Peter, not John, not you, not me. Jesus did it all. We, what, what the world sees in his humiliation, we see his glory. Why is it such a great deal that Jesus came down and he suffered that way? Because he condescended to identify with me. Now, he didn't have to do that. He did everything to make you righteous by bearing your sin. You miss that, you start to get self-reliant. And self-reliant, you know, outwardly strong people aren't very strong at all. Jesus did it all. Just remember that. That everything, like, the reality is if, if you have Jesus and he's born your sin, when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Because Jesus has borne all your sin. And so when you, you wonder about access with God, if you base it on your performance, no way. But if you base it on Jesus' performance, the one who went to the cross, let us come boldly to God, right? Because all God sees is the righteousness of Jesus there. And then finally, number three, the third reality is love is our ethic. People who lack love are devoid of the Spirit. Real love is guided by truth. Real love authenticates the truth. Real love can do truth and not miss people. 
okay? Not bludgeon people. It's not just the law, it's the DNA and fruit of who we are. Where does that kind of love come from? I remember years ago, I've been doing this over 20 years, and uh, in my former life, I, I felt this burden and call to uh, go into the ministry. Lifeway Church opened up, and my, one of my big fears was, I don't know if I'm a nice enough person to be a pastor. And some of you, all right, this is monological, all right? So don't, this is not a back and forth kind of thing. But I mean, part of it was, would I have a heart for people uh, as, a, as a minister, right? If, if you're a shepherd, you, you need to love the people around you. Would I have a heart to do that? Where would love like that come from? So I prayed about it. Um, There's an old movie about a doctor. Uh, and what he said, he goes through this transformation, but what he said was, I, I, I just want to cut straight and care less. I just want to speak the truth is another way of saying that. He, realizes, he realized that you couldn't do that. Where does this kind of love come from? You love deeply because you've been initiated, because you've been loved deeply. You've been the recipient of deep love. Here's the truth. Right? You know what you've done. You know your weaknesses. You could not be loved more deeply. It is impossible that God would love you more if you're a believer. It's not possible. Your, your love to the hilt, it's overflowing, okay? Uh, God has done everything to show you love. Christ has said, my life for yours. That's why I came. You're estranged from God, I'm, I'm going to take care of that. My life for yours. That's... I want to push back sometimes because uh, it's easy enough to uh, feel uncomfortable in your own skin. And I get it. You, you know, I mean, some of you are kind of socially awkward. I'm a little socially awkward. We've got, everybody has their things, right? You have your quirks and your things. Uh, there is in uh, the evangelical world, let's call it this, let's call it the evangelical monolith. And what you hear is something like this. What is the Christian response to fill in the blank? Like, like, if you're a Christian, you will do X, Y, and Z. This is the way you have to do it. Now, there are non-negotiables in the Christian faith, no doubt, no doubt. But the, the push here is kind of like everybody has to be the same. No, you don't. Like everybody, uh, you know, the, the word is, this is how we do it. The, we, we have to be like this and this and this. No, you don't. Sometimes the monolith where everything has to be the same is why Christian art can suffer. Uh, it's why uh, individuals are, can be, part of why individuals can be insecure or selfish, can make them not participate in the body. So let me tell you something. Be orthodox and be you. It's, it's kind of wonderful and beautiful. You just get to be you, right? Be orthodox, believe the truth, but just be you. It's actually what we need. There are, there are some people who... And the recesses of their inner being can object to this. I mean, I'm just supposed to be me, and God loves me, and God couldn't love me more, and you've got your reason. So let's just say you're just a kid, right? You're listening to the sermon, you're like, when is this guy ever going to end? And to tell you the truth, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to end, okay? <laughs> but let's say you're a little kid, and you're like, you're coloring right now, you're coloring on something, or you are praying to God, you're just like, God, please make Pastor Stacy, you know, be quiet or whatever. It's coming, okay? We're about to stick the 
but you're a little kid and you, you're thinking, I'm in church and I'm hearing about God and I believe there's a God and, and all of that, but I don't understand all the things yet. Right? I trust Jesus, but I know that uh, I, I just don't, I don't have it all figured out yet. And I just tell you, as your pastor, I get to be a messenger from God in certain uh, situations. That Jesus loves you. Right? Right where you are at four or eight or whatever, you know, doodling on the handout, Jesus loves you. Let's say you're a teenager or you're a young adult and you're in that in-between place and uh, you, you feel like your life is kind of chaos sometimes and you're, you're growing, you're maturing, but you're not there. It's frustrating to try to sort all of that stuff out. Sometimes you're unpleasant to be around, you know. Um, it seems like you have an invisible enemy called hormones. Invisible to you, but not to the rest of us, right? I'll just tell you, one, you're not doing anything wrong by not being there yet. If you're a teenager, if you're in your 20s or something like that, you don't have everything put together and you don't have all the answers and the pieces. It's just the way it goes. You're between places, but here's what I want you to know. Jesus loves you. All right? Even like you can be difficult to be around, but Jesus specializes in that kind of thing. He will get you there. What about the good thing? I'll talk about older people here, adults. The good thing about adults is that they have it all figured out. (laughs) You think that sometimes until you live with an adult or you become adult. Some of you have a life of regret. Okay. And you, you think about this question, you being you and the love of Jesus for you, and you step back and you just go, yeah, I mean, I get it, but not me. Uh, I could tell you a hundred things I've missed. I could tell you a thousand things I've messed up. I feel like a loser sometimes. I've, like, mine is a life of shame. And I question I'd ask you is, what is it that you think Jesus bore on that cross? Jesus loves you. You couldn't be more loved. In, in John 15, what Jesus says, John 15, 13, he says, no greater love has anyone than this than that someone lays down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for you. Like, you, you think he doesn't know your weaknesses? You think he doesn't know all the things that you messed up? Why is it that you think he went to the cross? He he gets it. Why did he descend so low? That's what he was bearing. You couldn't be more loved. It it is impossible for God to love you more than he does. And so whenever we look at Jesus' command, a new command I give to you, love one another as I've loved you, we have this compelling reason to believe. You can know the promise of God, but Jesus represents the commitment of God to you. You get to see this unwavering love of God for you. So we love. It's this new commandment. It's true, love is a trial, right? It's also the way. It's hard. Important things are heavy things, and heavy things tend to be hard. It's not an easy thing. So why do them? You do important things because they're important. Because they matter, because they're worth the effort. And to be clear, what we're talking about here is is people. Important, heavy, hard 
worth the effort? How do you know? Exhibit A, Jesus went to the cross to bear the sins of people. This is how you know that God went all in. This is how you know there's no doubt. Exhibit A, Jesus went to the cross for people. Don't tell me you need an exhibit B. Let's love each other the way Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. God, thank you for great love lavished on us all through Jesus. Though dead, made alive, blind, can see, estranged, reconciled to you, all because of Jesus, your mercy and ministry to us through Jesus. So Lord, help us to live uh, out the way we've been loved and love each other, to do that so that the world will get a... uh, a witness with an offer of proof, a corroboration of its truth, but also so that we'll have the joy of living out who we are, people who are loved and couldn't be loved more. Let us do that for your glory, our good, the world's good. In Jesus' name, amen.